You are listening to the Great Commission Leadership Podcast, a podcast that encourages leaders pursuing the Great Commission. Welcome to the Great Commission Leadership Podcast. My name is Graham Withers, and I want to thank you for listening. Great Commission Leadership is a podcast that brings on amazing ministry leaders every week and highlights how they are fulfilling the Great Commission in their context. And this week, I'm really excited to introduce you to Mike McKinley. He's the senior pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church in Sterling, Virginia. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Graham. Well, I'm excited to hear Mike's story and just hear a little bit about how God has been at work um, in Sterling Park and in some of his other ministry endeavors. So Mike, why don't you just get us started uh, by telling us a little bit about who you are and how you've gotten into the ministry you're in today. Yeah, so um, I uh, let's see, grew up in suburban Philadelphia. So in a family, kind of everyone in my family became Christian when I was about maybe 10 or 11 years old. So really unchurched until that point. And then uh, God intervened um, and, uh, and really brought my whole family to faith in the course of like a year or two. Um, for me, kind of the one of the major shaping influences as a Christian was uh, I was an undergraduate at uh, George Washington University in D.C. and um, began to attend uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Mark Dever had uh, uh, just become pastor there. Um, yeah. So I think my second week at the church was the week of his installation and so uh, or the first week of his, his pastorate there. And so uh, Mark discipled me through the last three years of college. And that was a really big um big influence on me. Um, uh, after college, went up to Westminster Theological Seminary back in, in my hometown. And then when I was finishing up there, um, Capitol Hill Baptist asked me to come plant a church for them in the suburbs. They had a lot of people who were driving into the city every Sunday for church. And so uh, I spent a year on staff uh, at CHBC, and then they sent me out to, uh, to where I am now. And uh, it's been about 15 years that I've been pastoring out here in Sterling. So we got connected through our friend uh, Garrett Kell. He was on a few episodes ago. But, I, Mike, I was actually introduced to you first through uh, your book, Church Planning is for Wimps. And uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, just the story of, you know, why you were so passionate about church revitalization as opposed to uh, planting in the traditional sense and maybe what some of the differences you saw were. Yeah, so... Um... You know, as I mentioned, we, I was brought on staff at, at Capitol Hill Baptist to, to plant a church, but it was always kind of in the, the back of our mind that if it, would be, if it was possible to revitalize a church uh, instead, that that would be in some ways preferable. And that's uh, in the Lord's providence what wound up happening. Um, so we had a little church planning team of seven folks. Uh, we found a church. We kind of targeted this this uh, town of Sterling, uh, about 45 minutes outside of D.C., um, and we found a, an old Baptist church from the 19th century uh, that had just kind of dwindled down. They had maybe a max of 10 people on a Sunday morning, no pastor for a year and a half. The building had fallen apart. And, um, the world just kind of changed around this little church. And so instead of starting something new in their backyard and watching that church die, we decided to, to join up with them. And uh, the church, of course, um, agreed to, to, to that plan. And, um, and so we kind of got that work going. So... You know, the, one of the main advantages, well, there's, there's actually a bunch of advantages. Um, so in one sense, you know, uh, just having access to the resources of an established church is really nice. So having helped plant other churches now, I can see how um, just practical things like a building and chairs and, the, you know, uh, hymnals and Bibles are really nice things to have. There's a reason why churches buy those things. Um, 
So that was great to be able to just sort of not have to worry about some of those logistics. Um, but I think more importantly, there's people there that need um, spiritual care. So it was a real joy to pastor some of those older saints that we, we joined up with. Um, and then just, I think just the reputation of the church in the community. So, you know, I think when people drove by the church building or when they interacted with church members, the, the impression you got was um, this is kind of a dying church and um, the, you know, the witness of the church is, is compromised, but, you know, over time we're able to kind of reestablish um, the, the gospel presence in the community and, and kind of restore the church to, I think what it had been, you know, back at its founding. And so that's, it's kind of a, a gospel twofer, you know, you get to, to sort of take down one bad witness and, and put up a good one. So, yeah, but it's definitely different. And I think in some ways, yeah. in some ways there's advantages to it. Uh, in other ways, it, I think maybe not, maybe harder than, uh, than starting from scratch. Sure. Yeah. So when you think about um, the way that that kind of transpired, like, would you say that it was kind of like what we might call like a merger or some other people might call an adoption? And if so, like, what were some of the, what were some of the principles at play in doing that in a way that honored the people there, honored God above all, but also kind of set you up for success? Like as you sought to really see a healthy, gospel-centered church thrive in that area yeah yeah um those are good those are good questions i think because it's really it's important um that the way that we go about pursuing church revitalization itself honors the lord that it's not you know it, it, we, we're not borrowing yeah. uh, methodologies from like the, the the business world of sort of hostile takeovers or things like that and so um you know i think being honest up front with the people that you're sort of um, working with. So the folks who are coming with me from Capitol Hill Baptist, they understood kind of what it is that we were going to be doing. Um, but trying to get the folks from what was called Guilford Baptist Church, um, you know, to, to see like, hey, here's here's what it would look like to merge, to try and discern like what were what were parts of the, the church's past that we could honor and, and maintain, um, mm-hmm. what were things that probably like had to change um, immediately. And what were things that maybe could be changed more gradually over time when people kind of got used to some of the other changes. So I think being able to communicate those things, discern which things were kind of first tier issues that had to change right away versus things that may not be exactly what I prefer, but we can, we can kind of live with them uh, for a while. Uh, I think those are the kinds of um, conversations you have to have in that situation. Sure. Yeah. So it's just kind of getting the lay of the land, making a priority list and just kind of sensing God's leadership and, you know, what are some things that are, are easy to hit right off the bat? Yeah, I think so. I remember talking to the church and they were asking about, you know, what, what was my agenda? What was my plan, you know, day one? And, you know, I, I basically said, really, I'm not going to, I don't really plan on making any changes. There's some like, there's some like cleanup that needs to happen, just tidying up the, the main hall so that we can meet in it. Uh, but basically, I'm just going to, just going to preach and try to disciple and evangelize and, we'll just see where that takes us and what the Lord does with it. But, um, you know, I didn't have like a whole list in it that the the church was going to have to sort of adopt my agenda for everything. Um, right. So, and the good thing is I think most, most Christians want to hear God's word preached and they want to pray and evangelize and see people discipled. So there wasn't like tons of controversy about that kind of thing. So. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear more about that first though. Give us a little bit of insight into what Sterling is like just outside of DC, uh, what are some of the some of the things that you have to think through as you're seeking to do ministry in your community? 
Yeah, it's a really it's a really um, unique place to do ministry in some ways. So uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, the county that we're in, um, is the richest and fastest growing county in America. Or at least it was last time I checked a couple of years ago. So maybe maybe another county has uh, surpassed us. But that's the vibe here. Hmm. As the government keeps expanding, uh, defense contractors, government contractors, uh, technology um, just continues to. Um, to blow up and so there's just construction everywhere there's new money everywhere mcmansions going up you know everywhere um and so uh in the middle of that is the the little town of sterling park which is where the church is now um and this is one of the kind of original neighborhoods out here when this was all farmland and so what's happened is this neighborhood is now you know probably at least 85 or 90 percent immigrant um it's mm. much less affluent um so the street i live on um, most of the houses will have multiple families living in them. Um, you know, oftentimes people living, you know, uh, 14, 15 people to a house in our neighborhood. Um, wow. the principal of the elementary school told me that 95% of the kids in our, at our local elementary school don't speak English at home. So you just have a tremendous amount of, um, of need. A lot of people who are in the country, like just very recently with a lot of need for just services to get up and running and figure out how to get acclimated, find a job. Um, most, I don't know if it's most, but a large percentage of the, the folks are here illegally. So there's a whole bunch of uh, issues around that. So, so in the midst of a, a lot of wealth um, and affluence, there's also this like pocket of incredible need. And um, so it's a, it's a unique place to do ministry. Yeah. So when you think about, um, some of the things that have been key for you guys as you've sought to establish this healthy uh, gospel-centered church in this uh, really unique area. Um, let's first think about like evangelism, and you think about reaching people, training your people to reach people with the gospel. Uh, what are some What are some things that you've seen to be uh, beneficial as as you've led that for the last few years? Yeah, it's it's looked uh, but probably a bunch of different ways. So early on, I think most of our most of the we saw were Spanish speaking people, um, which was strange because most of the people in our sort of congregation didn't speak Spanish. But mm-hmm. um, the Lord gave us an opportunity about six months after we started the work out here. The Lord gave us an opportunity to plant a Spanish language church. Um, and, and so that work began. And, and so a lot of our kind of early evangelism was, um, just building relationships in the community with folks who didn't, didn't even really speak English, um, but loving them, caring for them, um, and, uh, and connecting them into people who did speak Spanish, who could, who could share the gospel. Um, you know, even now we have a lot of, uh, a lot of work with kids who speak Spanish at home, um, where, you know, our, our folks will come and, uh, tutor them. Uh, do Bible studies with them, things like that. Um, I think one of the things that's been most effective uh, in terms of like actually training people is just um, kind of bringing them along as as I or one of the other elders do evangelism, or um, you know trying to trying to have evangelistic conversations with other people present, so you can kind of show, hey, yeah. here's a model. So, for example, one one uh, one guy. Um, in our congregation, became a Christian uh, from a, from a Hindu background, um, coming out of uh, AA, and so uh, he becomes a Christian, and um, I'm discipling him, and he's 
not wanting to talk to a lot of his friends about the gospel and people in AA. And so as we're, as we're talking, you know, we're praying for people and uh, I'm encouraging to have these kind of conversations, but as he's telling me about these conversations, you know, they're kind of like well-intentioned, but not very clear. Right. So like, you know, so I just told this guy, God loves you, man. He's your father. Like you just have to believe that God loves you. Right. And you're like, okay, I love the zeal. That's great. Yeah. Let's tighten that up a little bit. Probably want to mention Jesus at some point, you know, that kind of thing. And so as we're getting into it, I was like, hey, listen, what if you just like brought anybody who's interested to the church? And I was like, we'll just study the Bible and I'll help. Like I'll run the Bible study. Like that way, you know, we can help people who are interested in study the Bible and you can watch me interact with unbelievers, answer questions and hear. And like, I think over time you'll get to be good at it. And, uh, you know, so that's what he did. And first, you know, the first day they had like 12 or 13, like unbelievers, you know, kind of coming out. Wow every week to study the Bible uh, with me. And it's, I mean, one of my favorite things to do. We've seen some of those guys come to Christ, but kind of to your question, what I've, what I've noticed over the course of like the year of doing that Bible study is that that guy's gotten really sharp in terms of how he communicates the gospel and how he is now equipped to evangelize other people. So I think that's one of the best things you can do is just, if you can find ways to just allow people to kind of observe um, so that they can kind of get a sense for what it looks like. It's actually much less scary to them and, and hopefully equips them well. Yeah. So think through, uh, with me a little bit, just kind of your all's discipleship strategy. Um, I, I think like when I think about discipleship, like you have to see it as closely tied to evangelism, not separated and, and vice versa as well. And you talked about, uh, utilizing, the Bible, like the Bible study is kind of a, a main strategy for evangelism. Uh, talk to me about what that looks like for discipleship. Like, is it a, is it a, a similar uh, mindset? Are there some nuances there? Like, what does, what does that look like together, but also kind of separate? Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think in terms of our kind of church approach, I think we try to take our marching orders from Ephesians 4, where, you know, Paul talks about, uh, the leaders of the church, uh, you know, being tasked with equipping the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of one another. Uh, and so one thing we try to do is make it clear that discipleship is is not just meant to be uh, the, the job of leaders, but that like the work of ministry actually is shared amongst all the members of the church and that all the saints are to be building one another up. And so as a leader, I see my job is to kind of prepare, equip, and and train the, the people in the church to build one another up um and so sometimes practically that looks like uh bible study if i can get somebody to read the bible with me that's always my first choice like that's that's fantastic um and so for you know particularly for new believers um people who aren't uh very well um equipped to kind of self-feed in the bible um you know reading the bible with them can be really helpful because it gives them again a sense of like how to read the Bible, how to apply it to your life, things like that. Um, so with some some guys maybe that we're um, trying to train and equip for church leadership, you know, to serve perhaps as elders in the future, uh, it may just be sitting down and reading a book with them. So um, there's usually, you know, five or six guys that I'm meeting up with, you know, during the week uh, where we're reading something, whether that's, so right now I'm reading um, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands with a couple guys in the church. Um, mm -hmm. I'm reading... Um, Van Hooser's uh, Hearers and Doers with another guy in the church. These are guys who are kind of like either in 
leadership of the church or kind of have the, the character and the desire that I think someday they could be. And so, you know, um, there's, those are guys that we want to have reading the Bible with other Christians. Uh, and I'm trying to kind of help equip them to think about how to do that, that work, um, you know, even better than they might do it on their own. So yeah, if that makes sense. So that's, we don't really have, we don't have much in the way of programs. It's more relational. We'll, we'll pair church members up together to read the Bible with one another. Um, so I've written a bunch of Bible study notes that are really just kind of inductive Bible study questions. Um, not really a lot of yeah. answers so that, you know, you don't have to it kind of take the intimidation out of it. You can just show up and read the Bible and ask and answer the questions with someone. And so that's really our, in many ways, our sort of discipleship strategy is to get people reading yeah. the Bible with each other or, or with a leader. Oh, that's good. So you said you have some materials and you kind of push the, any, any, uh, any keys for developing that culture, like big picture in your church, other than you as the pastor modeling that some of your leaders, is there anything else that you think is beneficial to think through and, and really seeing that develop, uh, in another place or in another church? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I would say that's been something that's actually been really slow coming in our church. And I feel like just in the last few years is something that's really developed. So I'm not sure. I, I, I'd love to hear maybe someone give a better answer than I could. Yeah, I, the, the way what I've seen the Lord do is basically using uh, the example of our leaders. So it was as I think about yeah. why um, it feels like that culture developed over time, uh, I can point to a few kind of key leaders that the Lord uh, brought along or raised up who were really kind of passionate disciplers who it feels like they kind of multiplied uh, my efforts and the efforts of a couple other people. Uh, and made it so that it was it was more normal and uh, and so yeah we have we have a a good group of, of folks who I think kind of have that um, kind of understanding of what what it means to be part of a church and to disciple others and that that builds its own momentum creates its own culture new people come in and they see that's the norm and they get plugged into it and so mm-hmm. it's it's easier in my experience to sustain than it is to start so yeah. So one of the other things you talked about with uh, discipleship was the importance of preaching, especially early on, establishing discipleship, evangelism, prayer, preaching. Maybe talk a little bit about your kind of your big picture philosophy about preaching uh, briefly. I'm sure we could talk all day about <laughs> preaching philosophy, but kind of just like as you see it in your church. But then on a more practical level as well, like what is it? What does sermon preparation look like for you? What are some what are some keys that you found to be successful for you over the years? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so we, we kind of understand that the, the church's life in many ways kind of revolves around that Sunday gathering, right? That's when mm-hmm. we come together, you know, as, as the assembly, as the church. And so, um, to, to, to worship God, uh, by, by hearing his word and then responding to it, whether that's singing prayer, um, the Lord's Supper, that kind of thing. And so the so preaching really does in many ways kind of stand at the center of, of uh, our church life, uh, whoever it is that's preaching. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, philosophy, I, I um, you know, I basically do uh, expositional preaching sequentially through books. Um, so nothing, nothing shocking there, nothing particularly original there. In terms of a philosophy of preaching, you know, I think um, as I'm preparing, I find that preparing now 15 years in in terms of experience i spend a lot less time in commentaries and a lot more time 
uh, just contemplating the text and kind of trying to prayerfully uh, apply it. So I think I, I, I'm asking the question, what is this saying a lot less? And I'm asking the question, how does this kind of, how does this address the, the, um, the heart and the mind of, of the congregation? So I'm, mm-hmm. I mentioned, um, Kevin Van Hooser's book, Hears and Doers. And he takes, he takes the idea, he takes Charles Taylor's idea of social imaginary from a secular age. This idea that like, we all have like a, a world that's, you know, that we're kind of placed in and located in that helps us make sense of everything around us. I and mean, it's usually largely invisible to us, but it kind of controls in many ways what seems possible and impossible and what's plausible and what's the good life and things like that. And, uh, and Van Hooser really argues that the role of preaching or really discipleship in pastoral ministry uh, is to use scripture and doctrine to shape that social imaginary for the church, that the church ought to have its own mm-hmm. distinct um, world that it lives in. And so that's one question that I, I find myself spending a lot of time. So, so just before we started talking, I was you know, in my office reading through Matthew 23. So I'm preaching that Lord willing on Sunday where Jesus, you know, pronounces woes to the Pharisees and trying to think, you know, how, how is this, um, you know, how is this speaking, not just to, you know, his audience back then, but like, where does it, where does it intersect with, with our world, with the way we think about, you know, even like the fall and hypocrisy of evangelical leaders, but even more, where does it, where does it kind of pierce my own heart? Where does it, you know, leave me open? Uh, how does it, how, how am I tempted to apply this to other people and not to myself? How is my hearer mm-hmm. attempted to think this is about somebody else and not about them? Um, how does it affect the way we, you know, uh, think about our leaders? How does it think, you know, the social people? In our, so I'm just, I find myself spending a lot of time trying to prayerfully um, think about how to, how to apply this really well. That's tends to be, not that the question of what it says isn't important. I just find that question, I'm better at answering that question more quickly. Uh, I'm less nervous. I don't feel like I have to reread every commentary written in order to be sure I'm right about that. Um, and it's probably even going back and rereading some old sermons. Um, I find myself much more, you know, thinking and emphasizing, um, you know, where, where does this, where does the rubber hit the road a lot more? So, um, mm. yeah. Well, that's helpful. So when you think about your leadership, um, Think about maybe just a, a lesson of leadership that you've learned, personal experience, something like that. What's something that you've learned along the way that you think is a could be a helpful uh, example for us? Yeah, I think um, you know maybe this won't be helpful for everyone, but uh, so I think with my like my, my personal temperament, I'm uh, I think I'm blessed and cursed with uh, the propensity to see when, uh, when there's an issue in the church that needs, um, uh, leadership or, or, you know, needs decisive action. I tend, I tend to be able to see both sides in a conflict pretty well and, and even, uh, find myself in, in ways agreeing with, with both sides. And so, um, maybe that's not a personality quirk shared by everyone, uh, that's listening, but, um, it, it can be a strength, but, uh, it also has, it's it's weakness and certain what after your question is um th- there are situations where actually uh, kind of decisive leadership towards what is right is is um 
is really absolutely necessary. And, and I tend to be a person who kind of wants to hold people together. I want to avoid, uh, not just conflict, but I want to avoid people sort of separating over things. Um, and just in a, in a fallen world, it's, uh, it's oftentimes not, not inevitable that, um, that there's going to be those kinds of to jump in and, and just say, Hey, look, this is right. Uh, this is wrong and, and we have to move ahead. Um, and that's, yeah. that's painful for me personally, but, um, yeah. So when you, the first thing I thought of when you were saying that was like, how, what are some ways that that was challenging, especially at the beginning of your time working through a church? I don't know if you would call it a replant or whatever, the adoption or the merger. Uh, were there some challenging times during that season in specifically, or has that been more challenging? Like as you've tried to lead uh, after the fact and like lead towards long-term health? Yeah, I think in, in many ways, um, you know, when we, when we did the merger originally or when we kind of originally, um, you know, did the, the revitalization work, I think in many ways that sort of um, impulse to bring everyone along together served us really well. So I think it kept mm. people from feeling alienated or, or put out. So not being kind of heavy handed and, um, sort of anxious to make a bunch of changes and impose certain things. And it was actually uh, after the church got rolling a little bit um, that I found kind of the, the need for more sort of decisive leadership. So uh, there was one circumstance where, and for reasons, there were a host of people in the church that already, and I was a young man and kind of desperately wanted to kind of keep everyone together uh and it it took me longer than it should have i think to sort of decisively say so we th thank god the the leadership we did what was right immediately um thankfully but then the blowback from that uh, i wish i'd been much more decisive um and sort of coming in and saying look if you can't get on board with this particular uh reality like you you, you just probably can't stay at this church like we're not going to be the, the leaders that you want um, and so, so a situation like that, I think, um, you know, my desire, my, I, I mean, I hope my love of people and my desire to kind of come, uh, close, um, you know, I didn't so willing to say, Hey, look, this is what's right clearly. Um, and though I, I see where you're coming from, uh, that's not, that's not how we're going to, that's not how we're going to roll here. And so you're going to need to either get on board, which, which is what most people did. Um, and I think later on, I think to move along to, to another church, which is what some, some other people did. So, uh, I'd love to close just by hearing some different books or resources that have been helpful in your leadership. Um, could be Christian, non-Christian to things that have been, uh, helpful for you as you think about what it looks like to pastor and to shepherd well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just in terms of just practical guides, I think I mentioned uh, Instruments in Redeemer's Hands uh, by Paul Tripp uh, earlier. It's one of my one of my favorite uh, go-to um, resources. Um, I find that um, it's it's really helpful for me just to kind of uh, dig deep into the lives of of pastors who are who are better at this than I am and and more godly than I am. So, you know, the letters of uh, of John Newton. Uh, I find really um, helpful and encouraging. Um, 
so the uh, I, I forget the name of the volume, but um, uh, Jack Miller's um, letters, I think maybe letters of a servant leader or something like that. Uh, his daughter uh, collated after his death and pulled together. I find really helpful and um, just just practical um, mm -hmm. in terms of really. I find I find past pastoring is more about kind of preparing the posture of my heart. There's there, the situations are so many and varied that you don't get a lot of books that are telling you, okay, here's exactly how to handle this exact situation. Um, I find the books that are most helpful are the ones that help me um, remember that, yeah, my job is to point people to Christ. They don't need me. They need Jesus. Uh, they need me to help them see Jesus and, you know, books that just kind of help me get my heart in, in that posture are the ones that really, I think, serve me well. Hmm. Well, it's encouraging to hear Mike. I, Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on and, uh, man, just giving us some great perspective on leadership and what it looks like to lead out in the Great Commission in your church. I uh, appreciate it. I love, uh, love the opportunity just to be able to have a conversation with you. I know it's been beneficial to me and our listeners, so thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Great Commission Leadership Podcast. If this podcast has impacted you, please subscribe, share, and rate so that others can be impacted as well. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at GCLpod. And join us again next week for another episode of the Great Commission Leadership Podcast.